You're listening to the Metamore City Podcast, Episode 11, for February 10th, 2008. Warning! This episode contains adult language and mature themes. Listener discretion is advised. Metamore City, a podcast series created by Chris Lester. For more information, please visit www.metamorecity.com. Welcome back, Metamorphs! As always, I am your host, Chris Lester, and this is the Metamore City Podcast. How you doing, everybody? January was a crazy month for me, thanks largely to a four-day trip to California that required a couple of weeks of preparation on the front end. That prevented me from working on the podcast during that time, so I came back from that trip and had to rush like a madman to catch up with my release schedule. By the time you hear this, I'll be back in California again. I'll be in the Santa Cruz and Bay Area all this week, so drop me a line if you're in the area and you want to connect. I'm sure we'll have some sort of meetup planned, and I'll be happy to give you the details. That email address, as always, is feedback at metamorcity.com. We have two new voices joining our cast this week. Please welcome my good friends T. Morris and Philippa Ballantyne, who are playing the dual role of Evan and Ava Salindi. You may know them from the podcast novel Moravi Remastered, where Pip is playing the warrior queen Ascana Muldaren, and T is the English pirate she hires to protect her against an assassination plot. It's great stuff, and I encourage you to check it out over at moravi.net. That's www.morevi.net. Now then, it's time for Chapter 3 of Making the Cut. Here is... The Story So Far Daniel Sharabi was once a popular student in the Psy Collective's Westfall Academy, but the last five years since graduation have not been kind to him. Because of his mediocre powers, the local telepathic group mind known as the Hive has decided that he is unfit to breed. Last year, his girlfriend, Rebecca, was placed in a breeding cell along with three of their mutual friends, Brian, Fiona, and Sasha, all of whom have spent the last five years working for the government as covert psyops. Rebecca is now pregnant with Brian's child. Frustrated at being disenfranchised, Daniel has formed a friendship with his old combat instructor, Victor Hincavos. One day, after training with Victor, Daniel meets one of Vic's brightest students, the 15-year-old Abby Preston. Abby is one of the strongest teeps that Westfall has ever seen, and Victor is determined that she will someday be the mother of his child. This shocks Daniel. He warns Victor that the Hive Elders will object to the idea. Victor tells Daniel that he'd better be prepared to step outside the Hive's guidelines, or he's going to spend the rest of his life being used by them. When you're ready to do that, he says, you give me a call. Daniel returns to the apartment that he shares with the other men in his bachelor cell, Nathan, a computer cracker and conspiracy theorist, and Kevin, a laid-back massage therapist. Daniel gets a massage and some advice from Kevin, who tells him that he needs to decide what he wants most out of life and then go after it. Acting on this advice, Daniel goes back to Victor a couple weeks later and asks him to explain his plan for getting out from under the control of the Psy Collective. Victor tells him that he's been hired to provide security for a smuggling job. An unnamed member of Metamore City's upper class wants them to safeguard a package that his people are bringing in from overseas. Victor wants Daniel to watch his back. As a fellow Psy, Victor knows he can trust him, and Daniel's psychic healing could be important if their employer's competitors try to use deadly force to steal the package. Daniel agrees to the job knowing that if they succeed, he'll get enough money to repay his debts to the Collective and start a life for himself. And maybe, just maybe, Rebecca will come with him. Chapter 3 May 25th Daniel and Victor met their contacts in the back room of a small Pyralian restaurant on the third level of the Valley South Borough. The place specialized in authentic cuisine, unlike most of the mainstream Pyralian chain restaurants at the lower levels. 
the premium grana cheeses, prosciutto hams, and fine wines used here in one day's business cost more than those restaurants would earn in a week. Victor showed a business card to the Capo Camaria at the entrance, and they were quickly ushered into the private room. Unlike the rest of the restaurant, the meeting room was brightly lit. A long table with seating for about twenty filled most of the space, though only half its length had been set for dinner. The remaining surface area was taken up by stacks of maps, blueprints, and technical equipment, which Daniel was sure they'd be hearing about soon enough. There were six other people in the room already, in addition to the waiters who were bringing out the food. Four of them were big, muscular men who looked out of place in their ill-fitting suits. Mercs, if Daniel had to guess. One of them had gray-green skin and pointed ears that marked him as a breed. The others were humans of varying ethnic extraction. They stood in the far corner of the room, talking to each other in low voices. One of them noticed as they came in and nodded to Victor, who returned the gesture. An attractive, athletic-looking girl sat near the head of the table, her feet propped up on the chair next to her. She looked to be in her late teens, and seemed even more out of place than the Mercs. Her hair was a wild poof that stuck out in all directions like a lion's mane, mousy brown with shocks of gold running through it. Her facial features were fine and angular, almost elven in appearance, though her ears weren't pointed enough for her to have any measurable amount of elf blood in her. She was dressed in a black leather jacket and camo green cargo pants, with a hot pink raglan top that clung tightly to her chest and displayed her distinct lack of cleavage. As they came in, she was balancing one of the table knives point first on her finger, but upon spotting Victor and Daniel, she flipped it lazily up into the air and caught it one-handed. Daniel stared, completely impressed, and the girl cocked her head at him and gave him a lopsided grin. Ah, Victor. Excellent. Daniel turned to the source of the voice and saw the room's last occupant. He was a handsome, slender man, with golden hair that fell around his shoulders. Not merely blonde, but golden, a brilliant metallic color that shimmered like liquid sunshine. Daniel had never seen hair that color before, and he figured that it must have been spellcrafted. The man wore a tan suit jacket over a collarless white shirt that showed off his abs, and he had a gold chain around his neck that matched his hair perfectly. He smiled broadly as he came up and clasped arms with Victor. You're just in time for dinner. His accent and mannerisms told Daniel that he must be a Skywalker, a member of Metamore's upper class. Hello, Evan, Victor said, giving the other man a brief smile. I'd like to introduce you to my business partner, Daniel Sharabi. He turned to Daniel and gestured. Daniel, this is Evan Selindi. Evan looked Daniel up and down. His eyes widened slightly, and Daniel could see now that they were a striking lavender color, another obvious sign of spellcrafted body modification. A slow grin spread across Evan's face, and... Daniel blinked, startled. Evan's body and facial features shifted changing right before his eyes. In the space of a few seconds, the tall, slender man became a tall, slender, and stunningly gorgeous woman. Her generous breasts strained against the white fabric of her shirt, but her suit still fit her perfectly. Spellweave fabric, obviously. She smiled seductively at Daniel. Oh, Victor, darling, he's beautiful. Victor smirked. <laughs> My mistake. Daniel... May I introduce Ava Selindi? Charmed, she said, extending her hand with the palm facing downward. My lady, Daniel said, finding his voice and his manners at last. He took her hand and bowed over it, feeling somewhat numb. Growing up, he had never given much thought to the curse of Metamore, or those who allowed themselves to be affected by it. He had known some cursed people among the student body at Westfall, most notably Dell, but most spookies wore the small subdermal implants that kept the curse at bay. He was aware of androgynes, of course. They made up something like 20% of the city's population, and at Empire University the number had probably been closer to 30. An up-close transformation like this one, though, was the sort of thing that you usually only saw in movies. For one thing, self-fitting clothes were expensive. She said, stepping closer and putting a hand on his chest. Call me Ava. Don't waste your time, Ava, Victor said, clearly amused. Daniel's a teep. Get your leg over him and you'll be stuck in his head for the rest of your life. She took a step back, alarmed. 
She looked at Daniel questioningly, and he nodded, blushing furiously. Sorry, he said. It was a bitter irony he'd thought about far too often. He wasn't a strong enough teat for the hive to want him, but he had just enough power that it was impossible for him to have sex without entering a gestalt. While that made the experience doubly intense and intimate, it also meant that he could never have sex with a mundane safely. Mundies didn't have the ability to separate themselves again once their minds had merged, and it wasn't the sort of thing a teep could do for someone else. Ava pouted. Well, feck, she said, clearly disappointed. I suppose I'll have to make do with the eye candy, then. I'll ask to take a full body scan of you for the WorldNet avatar, but I suspect you'd rather not leave any records of your involvement in this. That would be best, Victor said dryly. Are you ready to get started? Ava adjusted her suit jacket and smiled, apologetic. Sorry. Yes, please, have a seat and welcome. The four mercs had taken their seats by now and were helping themselves to the appetizers. The teenage girl looked up at Daniel as he approached, then put her feet down and nodded toward the chair that she'd been saving. He smiled at her and slid into the seat. Thanks, he murmured. Those guys are a little scary looking. She twisted the corner of her lip into a quirky half-smile. You're not the only one who thought so, she said, her bright blue eyes sparkling with wry amusement. She put out a hand. Name's Callie Linder. Daniel Sharabi, he said, clasping her hand briefly. Nice to meet you. Right back at ya. She reached over to one of the appetizer plates and grabbed a piece of fried calamari. She peered curiously at the crispy bundle of tentacles before popping it into her mouth. You're a runner, aren't you? Daniel asked. She nodded. And you're not. He blushed, embarrassed. Is it that obvious? Kinda yeah, she said, grinning. Don't sweat it. Everybody's gotta start somewhere. I'm getting the kindly old veteran routine from a teenager, Daniel thought. Great. Been doing this for a while, have you? He asked. Almost three years. He blinked. How old are you? Eighteen. Daniel gaped. Callie saw his expression and snorted. Tuck your tongue back in, she said, grabbing another piece of calamari from the tray. I'm a street rat. We do what we gotta. At least I didn't have to turn prosy. Daniel blushed again. I'm sorry, he said. I didn't mean to imply, well, anything, really. You obviously must know what you're doing or you wouldn't be here. I'm just wondering how a 15-year-old runner managed to avoid getting herself killed. She shrugged. Just lucky, I guess. She winked, as if that meant something more than the obvious, but if so, Daniel didn't get the reference. Ava took a seat at the head of the table, and Victor sat down on her left across from Callie. He and the runner nodded to each other, obviously they had met before, and the meal began without fanfare. Daniel talked with Callie for most of that time. The girl was chatty and likable, and she seemed curious about telepaths in general and his own life in particular. He didn't deny the existence of the Psy Collective, which was something of an open secret, but he avoided any discussion of creches or breeding cells, which the general public did not know about. Any mention of the telepaths' unusual personal lives would provoke questions about why they were so obsessed with having large numbers of children, and the answer wasn't likely to do anything good for Teep Mundy relations. So, why are you taking this run? Kelly asked. It doesn't sound like you want to make a career out of this. I don't. Daniel paused, weighing his words. My girlfriend's parents don't think I'm good enough for her. They want her to be with this other guy who's more talented, has more upward mobility. He shrugged. I'm trying to get enough money for us to run off and make a new life together. Callie grinned. Aww, that's so romantic. I hope it works out for you. Daniel gave her half a smile. Yeah, me too. After dinner, the plates were cleared away and Ava stood to face the group. Thank you all for coming. Our mutual employer is grateful for your assistance and hopes that this will be a profitable venture for all of us. The ship bearing our intended cargo will be docking at Matthias Skyport tomorrow morning, so I want to make sure we're all clear on our respective duties before we begin. Victor? Victor gestured, and the maps and blueprints at the far end of the table floated up and spread themselves out over the available surface. Daniel could see now that they were diagrams of the Skyport and the surrounding area. Evan has spent the last year infiltrating the Skyport management. His security clearance is high enough to get us through the checkpoint and into the restricted areas of the port. 
The rest of you will be wearing doppel charms and using the ID cards of off-duty employees. Won't work, one of the mercs said. A charm that strong will set off the alarms. Normally it would, yes. But one of the guards at the security checkpoint tomorrow is in our employees' payroll. He'll disable the alarms and let you through. What about the other one? Callie asked. There's always two guards at every checkpoint. Ava smiled wickedly and shifted into a seductive pose. I'll take care of that. Callie smirked and nodded. Daniel felt pretty sure that Ava could distract just about any heterosexual male with a pulse. And on the off chance that the guard wasn't a hetero male, there was always Evan. Over the next half hour, Ava laid out the details of the plan. It seemed pretty straightforward to Daniel. The skyship was too big to offload its cargo directly into the bays at the skyport, so a group of deckhands would be sent up in a cargo tender to retrieve the ship's contents. Victor and Daniel would go with them, disguised as part of the group, and Victor would locate the client's parcel and guard it during the ride back down to the cargo bay, which the mercs would be responsible for securing against any outside interference. Once there, Victor would hand the parcel off to Callie, who would take it out of the skyport through the ventilation system and deliver it to its intended destination, a private security firm on the fourth level of the central borough. Victor, Callie, and the mercs asked questions about various technical aspects of the mission, most of which went over Daniel's head. The trickiest part, from his perspective, would be Callie's exit through the ventilation ducts, which were a maze of narrow tunnels that seemed like it would be dangerous and disorienting to travel through. Do you have a computer model of this place? Callie asked, eyeing the blueprints. I'd like some time to explore these tunnels in virtual before I do it for real. It's all on our server. We have a terminal with a spelljack downstairs. I'll show you where it is when we're done here. Take all the time you need. Callie nodded and leaned back in her chair. She was clearly thinking hard about the run, but she didn't look frightened. I would be if I had to go in there, Daniel thought. I wonder if that's claustrophobia or just common sense. Are there any other questions? Yeah, Daniel said, raising his hand. All eyes turned to him. Obviously you're expecting trouble on this run. Otherwise you wouldn't be paying us this kind of money. At what point in all of this should we expect to start getting shot at? Ava's expression turned grave. Our employer's rivals are intelligent and resourceful. Interference is possible at any point during the run. I can tell you that the skyship itself has been thoroughly screened both before and during the flight, so it's unlikely that there will be anyone waiting for you when you come on board. The most vulnerable point in the operation is the transfer from the ship to the cargo bay. No matter which pylon the ship docks at, there will be at least a hundred meters of empty air between the ship and the bay. Skimmer traffic is forbidden in that airspace, so a drive-by attack is unlikely. But there's a good chance that they'll try something aboard the cargo tender. So why not send more of us up there? Daniel asked, gesturing at the mercs. If we can't hold the cargo bay, it doesn't matter how many people we have on the tender, Victor said. There's a minimum of four Skyport security guards on duty at any cargo bay where a ship is coming in. We have to have enough people to replace all of them, or one of them will spot the fact that we're smuggling out one of the packages before customs arrives. Or worse yet, one of those additional security guards could be an enemy agent. Daniel nodded glumly. He understood the logic, even if he didn't like it. Any other questions? Ava asked, looking around the table. There were none. All right. Ms. Linda, come with me. The rest of you, try to get some sleep. Skids are up in ten hours. May 25th, 1995, Christos Reckoning. Third level, Valley Central Borough, Metamore City. Seven hours prior to Ava Salindi's briefing. Brian Summers awoke to the sound of soft, gentle breathing, and the sensation of warm, bare flesh against him on all sides. He smiled, letting out a contented sigh. Waking up nestled among three naked women was something he still hadn't quite gotten used to, but he was more than willing to keep practicing until it became second nature. He opened his eyes and looked left to see soft, dark hair and Rebecca's round, angelic face against his shoulder. His arm was wrapped around her, and he lovingly ran his fingers over her belly, swollen with the tiny life that had been growing inside her for the last five months. 
Sasha's small, light frame was draped atop him, her face against his chest and her legs entwined with his. Fiona lay nestled against his other side, her lean and muscular body pressed up close beside him, her hand resting possessively on Sasha's back. Brian hoped that no one was going to wake up with any cramps. It was a bit of a trick getting all of them onto one bed, and they didn't normally try it, but their nightly gestalt had gotten... Mm, interesting, and none of them had wanted to leave during the afterglow. Gradually, they had drifted off to sleep, their minds slipping apart from one another even as their bodies remained entwined. I'm the luckiest man in the world, Brian thought, and not for the first time. Sasha murred happily, pressing her face to his skin and kissing him. And don't you forget it, she said, her thoughts wrapping around his own like a lover's arms. Without disengaging from their bond, Brian reached out to Rebecca. You there, Bex? Rebecca's thoughts spiraled lazily up into the link. There aren't any pink unicorns. Don't be silly. It's just a fairy trying to trick you. Brian chuckled. (laughs) No pink unicorns. Got it. Rebecca's body tensed against Brian's, a flutter of confusion running through her thoughts. She relaxed a moment later, a smile drifting onto her lips. Hey guys. Sorry. I was dreaming. So we gathered, Sasha said, her thoughts amused. She lifted her head, blew a wisp of blonde white hair out of her eyes, and sent out another tendril of thought that echoed through their bond. Wake up, Frizzy, she said, her tone gentle but insistent. Fiona groaned, and cool streams of thought reluctantly spilled forth out of the deep, dark waters of her mind, the flow carefully controlled even as it washed through each of them in turn. What time is it? And don't call me that. Sasha chanted, her telepathic voice rebounding back and forth through the link like a vibration on a string. Gah! The sound escaped from Fiona's lips unbidden, and a surge of thought and emotion ran through the link. She sat up and grabbed Sasha's hair. Obnoxious wench, come here, she said, pulling the blonde woman's head up and kissing her roughly. Sasha growled hungrily and clambered over Brian to wrap herself around Fiona. She had a little too much momentum as she did so, and together they rolled off the side of the bed, letting out a shared yip of surprise as they landed on the floor. (laughs) Brian laughed. Everyone okay down there? He asked, though if there had been any serious injury, he would certainly have felt it through the link. (laughs) Just fine, thanks, Sasha said, her mental voice thick with desire. Frizzy broke my fall. There was another cry of mock outrage from Fiona. I'll show you, Frizzy, she said. Spread your legs, wench. By the time I'm done with you, they'll think you put your finger in an electrical socket. (laughs) The two women disengaged their link to Brian and Rebecca, now fully occupied with other matters. Brian shook his head, marveling again at the difference between the placid surface that Fiona showed the world and the powerful currents of emotion that ran underneath. She joined the cell out of duty and simple friendship, but by Valena she was a tigress in bed. Knowing that made her unflappable exterior and keen logical mind seem that much more remarkable, though sometimes Brian wondered why she felt the need to hold back as much as she did. The Gestalt could tell you a lot about a person, but Fiona had some very old and very solid defenses in place around certain parts of herself. Sasha could have wormed her way through them if she'd really wanted to, but it would have been an invasion of privacy and a violation of trust. Fiona would open up when she was ready, and not a day sooner. Rebecca yawned and put an arm around him. I wish we had a teak in our cell, she said, her thoughts still sounding muzzy. I'm hungry, but I don't want to get up. Brian reached up and stroked her hair. Sorry, hun, he said. I could run the microwave from here, but I can't put anything in it. I know, she said, pouting. A moment later, she brightened again. Hey, what about magnetism? There's a can of peaches in the cupboard. Brian smiled. 
Aluminum cans are only paramagnetic, Becca. Even if I could produce a field strong enough to move one all the way from the kitchen, I'd probably pull a steel girder down on us first. Oh. Well, darn. I guess I better get up then. This kid's not gonna feed herself. Brian touched her cheek. Stay. I'll bring you breakfast in bed. She grinned, then leaned forward and kissed him. You were so nice to me. You all are. I don't know what I'd do without you guys. There was a shriek of delight from the floor off to Brian's right. He raised an eyebrow. Get a lot more sleep, probably, he said, then climbed out of bed and grabbed his robe. Stepping carefully around Sasha and Fiona, he made his way down the hall to the kitchen. Sunlight was streaming in through the south-facing windows in the adjoining living room, filling the apartment with a warm, golden light. Brian glanced at the clock and saw that it was already afternoon. A really interesting night, he thought wryly. At least Mum can't complain anymore that I don't get enough exercise. He pulled a carton of eggs out of the fridge and began scrambling them all with a bit of milk in a large glass bowl, then set a large skillet on the stove and began heating it up. He had just poured the eggs into the skillet and was standing by with the spatula when the front door chimed. He frowned and looked back toward the master bedroom. Fiona and Sasha were still going at it, oblivious. He turned back to the eggs, ignoring the chime when it sounded a second time. Whoever it was could come back later. I apologize for the intrusion, Brian Summers, said a cool, gray voice in his mind. But this cannot wait. Brian swallowed nervously. It was one of the elders. He almost asked the elder to just tell him whatever was so damned important from right there, but that would have been rude. Sighing, he turned the heat down to low and put a cover over the skillet, then went over to the front door and slipped outside. The elder was dressed as they usually were, in plain clothes of drab, inconspicuous colors. The older telepath's face was as placid as ever, but the serious gray eyes held deep concern. Elder, Brian said, bowing. Even though they were right next to each other, he kept their conversation inside the link in order to keep the neighbors from overhearing them. What can I do for you? Your services are required for a mission of the utmost sensitivity, the elder said. Brian frowned. I'm not a psyop anymore. If you want me to fix your WorldNet server or clean a virus off your terminal, fine. Otherwise, I'd thank you to find someone else. There is no one else, the elder said. We have few electrokineticists of your caliber, and none are available who can match your skills at infiltration. Well, sorry, but I'm not available either, Brian said, his eyes narrowing. Five years of service, then a breeding cell. That was the deal. Didn't you tell me that being a father was a more important job for me than any single mission the Collective might need me for? It is an important job. I do not deny it. Unfortunately, if the present situation is not dealt with, your fatherhood will not matter, because all of us may soon be dead. Brian crossed his arms glancing briefly at the door and then back at the elder. Talk fast, he said. Tomorrow morning, the Vampire Syndicate is bringing in a shipment from a biotechnology lab overseas, the elder said gravely. Past intelligence reports in this facility have indicated that it is involved in the manufacture of nanotech viruses. Brian shifted, suddenly uncomfortable. Nanotech viruses, also called nanopixies or just nips, were magical creatures the size of bacteria that could enter a person's body and carry out any number of possible effects. They fed off their host's internal mana reserves, multiplied as needed, and then set to work doing whatever their designers had programmed them to do. They were extraordinarily useful little things, and since their creation, scientists had taught them how to perform gene therapy, high-precision body modification, toxic waste cleanup, and countless other functions but they could also be used to cause tremendous harm if the researcher didn't mind breaking a dozen laws and international treaties in the process. The exact nature of the technology being imported is unknown, but we know that the parcel in question was not registered on the ship's manifest, which suggests that it is contraband of such a serious nature that the vampires cannot simply pay off the customs agents to look the other way, given the vampires' animosity towards telepaths. And vice versa, Brian said, pointedly. Don't play the oppressed minority game with me. The Hive has done plenty to interfere with the local vamps over the years. 
The other smiled thinly. Just so. Given that, the Hive fears that this package may contain weapons components that would threaten the safety of the Collective. We want you to intercept the shipment and ensure that it does not. Brian frowned. He wasn't liking the sound of this at all. If the vamps find out we stole something from them, my life isn't going to be worth loot and spit. How am I supposed to do what you ask and still protect my family? We will provide you with illusion charms so that you and your fellow agents can disguise your identities. A non-detection scroll will prevent you from leaving behind any incriminating traces of genetic material. As long as none of you are captured, they will not be able to identify you. Brian put his hands on his hips and lowered his head, thinking. The Hive was obviously serious about this if they were putting forward these kinds of resources. I want an extra 10,000 marks in my cell's discretionary account, plus access to whatever funds we may need to do the mission itself. It will be done, the Elder promised. The Skyship is docking at Matthias Skyport tomorrow morning at 6.30. Del Matthews and Trey Sumbara have already offered to assist you in your mission. I suggest that you contact them immediately. Just like old times. The Elder turned to go, then paused and looked back. Oh yes, one more thing. Brian raised his eyebrows and waited. It is likely that the syndicate has hired highly talented local help to assist them in smuggling the package out of the skyport. You should expect intense opposition, and be prepared to meet it with force. Brian nodded heavily. What level of force are we talking about here? The older telepath looked regretful. Your personal identities will be secure, but it is essential that the vampires be given nothing to tie this matter back to the Collective. Their political power is too great, and they could bring great pressure to bear against the Senate if it could be shown the telepaths were responsible for the theft. The other's eyes turned hard. Stay on scene as much as possible, but if you are identified as telepaths, you must not let word get back to the Syndicate. Shoot to kill. We'll be back with more of the Metamorph City podcast right after these messages. Secret Lair, hosted by Chris Johnson and Chris Miller, coming in January 2008, www.thesecretlayer.com. You've entered the twisted mind of Scott Sigler. You've descended into the inner darkness of Phil Rossi. Now, journey into the imagination of T. Morris. This is Moravi Remastered. The world's first podcast novel reimagined with a new soundtrack, restored scenes, and the voice talents of Leanne Mabry, Christiana Ellis, Philippa Ballantyne, and George Harab. And the podcast continues in the fall of 2008 with Legacy of Moravi. And in 2009, with an original podcast anthology, The Dragon Clan of Moravi. A project so sweeping in scope. An adventure so epic in scale. It takes two ballsy voiceover professionals to cut the promo. Moravi Remastered. Pirates. Ninjas. And one hell of a good time. Subscribe at www.moravi.net and enjoy the ride.
Hi, I'm Nathan Lowell, and you're listening to Metamore City Number 11. Thanks, Nathan. For those of you who don't know, Nathan Lowell is the author of The Golden Age, a series of highly entertaining space adventure novels. His heroes aren't military personnel, they're commercial sailors, guiding vast merchant vessels on their long and lonely journeys through the deep dark. The characters in these stories really grabbed my interest, and I encourage you to give them a try. The first novel is called Quarter Share, and you can find it and its sequels on patiobooks.com. I've got some exciting news to share with you all. Metamore City now has its own official fan site. Thecursed.org is an online forum where you can participate in episode discussions, post fanfic and fan art, and create your own Metamore citizens for freeform role-playing. Big thanks go out to listener Kurt Street for recreating and maintaining this site. If you want to hang out with other metamorphs and talk about this crazy world, I encourage you to go check it out. I have some appearances in other podcasts that I want to tell you about. I did another interview for I Should Be Writing, this time with author John Scalzi, the creator of Old Man's War. You can find that over at isbw.merlafferty.com. I'm also very pleased to announce that I've been invited to appear on Three-Edged Sword, the Babylon 5 audio drama. Perhaps appropriately, I'm playing the part of the Psycor Commander. You can find that at VoicesOfBabylon.com, and the links to these sites will be in the show notes. Looking further out, I'm going to be at Balticon 42, which is being held May 23rd through 26th in Hunt Valley, Maryland, which is near Baltimore. This is going to be one of the biggest podcasting meetups of the year, so I encourage you to join us if you can make it. You can find out more about that at Balticon, B-A-L-T-I-C-O-N dot org. This episode's coming in a little short, so hey, we've got some time for feedback. And I have a couple of voicemails. Hey Chris, this is Jesse from Colorado. I've been a long-time podcast listener, and I got into your, my wife got me into your Metamore City, about three, four episodes into it, and I just want to say, fantastic job. You're, I am absolutely loving it. It is probably one of the best podcasts I've heard so far. Don't tell anybody else that, but, you know, it's, it's true. So you're doing an awesome job. Keep up the great work, and uh, I'll keep listening. All righty. Hey, thanks, Jesse. I'm glad you're enjoying the show, and a big thanks to your wife for turning you on to uh, Metamore City. Glad to have you both on board, and thanks very much for calling in. Now, what do I have here? Hey, it's a message from one of my cast members. Hey there, Chris. This is Nabilis calling. Um, Before I make my comment, I want to uh, preface for to listeners that while I am a member of the cast of this production, I have only seen a small portion of the script, so I'm commenting on what has appeared so far in the show, because I really haven't seen that much else. Um, I have to say that the most recent episode kind of snapped my suspenders a little bit. Um, that is, suspension of disbelief. The collective has to know the Hive has to know that these two people are very much in love, and that both of them would be much happier if they were able to live together and to raise a family together. The reason we're told that they can't do that is that he can't be the father of her children, <clears throat> as if that's the only way for those children to come about. Now, clearly, in this society in Metamore City, control of fertility is not a problem. So, would it not have been a reasonable compromise to allow them to live together and raise a family together as long as she were artificially fertilized by an approved member of the collective? There are numerous cases in modern times where the day-to-day life father of a family is not the biological father of the child and the family functions just as well as any other. And the 
collective would have to know that that's possible. Especially if he loves her, and therefore her child. So, uh, I, I have a hard time understanding why that kind of arrangement would be not only impossible, but not even mentioned. No one involved, not, not, especially not Daniel. I mean, why wouldn't Daniel say, look, instead of forming a breeding cell, just let us live as a couple, live together, and, and her children will be the collective's children instead of mine. I mean, that's what he really wants, right? Because of what he really wants, is to have his children, then what he's in love with is not, not his girlfriend, but in the idea of having children, which is selfish. So, uh, I'm, there's, a, there's a possibility there that I think has been ignored, and I don't see that I've been provided, as a listener, with enough reason for anybody to have left that possibility out. Everything seems to be there to make it work, but nobody's even talked about it. So, I was a little disappointed by this. The production was wonderful, the acting was great, the writing was good. I just find the plotting a little contrived to create this situation. I think uh, I, the whole thing just kind of disappointed me. I'm sorry. Uh, Sorry to put it so critically, but it's, I think, a serious flaw in the story. Bye. Hey, Nobilis. Pardon me here while I turn down the music. This is going to take a few minutes, and I want to be sure that I'm coming through clearly. First off, thank you for calling in and giving me your unvarnished tank on things. I don't ever want to create the impression that I'm one of those people who can't take criticism or think that I've got nothing left to learn, so I appreciate your honesty in telling me what you think works and doesn't work. Now, as for your specific question, I can see where this is an element of the Psy Collective Society that's going to be hard for a lot of people to identify with. It's always hard when you're first setting up a story world to know how much detail is enough and how much is too much. How much exposition do you do before cutting to the action, and how much do you sort of let people figure out as they go along? It's a balancing act, and I'm not arrogant enough to think that I pulled it off flawlessly on my first full-length novel. But this is a case where you're dealing with a society that has a completely different psychology from our own, and it's hard to show the magnitude of those differences without falling into info-dump territory. That having been said, I'll try to explain a bit of the story behind the story, so that hopefully this makes a little more sense. At this point in time, the Psy Collective is basically a two-tiered society. On the outside, you have the casual participants, telepaths who either don't like the collectivist lifestyle or can't take part in it for one reason or another. These folks work with the hives for mutual defense, and they'll pass information back and forth, but they don't get the socialized health care, the guaranteed housing, the guaranteed education, that sort of thing. That's the path that your character, Del Matthews, decided to take. After graduating from the creche, he did a tour of duty with the military intelligence directorate, got married to an ecclesiast, and uh, then settled down as a private citizen. He didn't ask the hive for anything, and vice versa. He's still on call if there's a threat that endangers the entire Psy community, but other than that, he and his wife are on their own. Now, the other tier is the active participants, the people who commit themselves to life as part of the hive. These folks get all of their practical needs taken care of for themselves and any children that they might have, but in exchange, they agree to follow the rules that the hive has laid down. Over the last hundred years, the collective has come up with what it is convinced is the ideal model for raising children in a telepathic community. That's the breeding cell. The primary advantages of the breeding cell are, number one, it starts the children out in a collectivist sort of environment right from the beginning, so they learn right away that the idea of family is bigger than just you and your mom and dad, which makes integration into the creche a lot easier. Number two, division of labor. 
At any given time, a breeding cell of one man and four women, which is considered the ideal, has at least three people who are able to work outside the home. The cell structure allows women to take more time off work during those critical early months with their baby, when it's most important to have the mother be available to be with her child. That helps the breeding cell to stay revenue positive, earning money for the hive faster than it's spending it, which is very important over the long run if they want this whole system to work. Number three, it provides a built-in childcare system that's safe and secure from any sort of mundane involvement and doesn't require any extra expenditure on the hive's part. So that's the system that they've got, and as far as they're concerned, it's the right way to do things. It's the system that makes the most sense for the long-term future of the collective. Now, this is where Daniel and Rebecca come in. When they accepted the Hive's offer to attend university on collective funds, they were agreeing to be part of this system. Essentially, Daniel was making a gamble that he would be able to improve his powers enough during his time at uni that he would be able to qualify for a breeding cell by the time he got out. As we saw, that didn't turn out like he hoped. If he and Rebecca were to ask to start their own monogamous family after agreeing to be part of the Hive society, well, essentially they'd be asking for special treatment. Even if they agreed to let a stronger teep be the biological father of Rebecca's children, their family would not have the advantages that I discussed earlier. Their children would be coming into the creche at a disadvantage. Daniel would have to work longer hours to keep them financially solvent while Rebecca was having kids, and Rebecca would have to either stay at home full-time for several years, or they'd have to find childcare somewhere else. The Hive wants to make sure that its children are growing up in the best environment possible, and Daniel and Rebecca's family just wouldn't be able to measure up. So basically, you'd have two young people asking for permission to handicap themselves and their future children just because they love each other that much. Well, to the telepath's mindset, that just doesn't make any sense. In our society, we're very devoted to a very idealistic notion of romantic love, that this magical connection between two people is more important than any of the practical considerations of what their relationship will mean in the long term. We see this over and over again in every story that Hollywood tells us, practically. The Hive doesn't have the luxury of maintaining those kinds of illusions, not when it perceives that its survival is at stake. And also, the Hive understands something that a lot of people in our culture don't. Learning to love someone really isn't all that hard. Human beings are psychologically built for loving others. And the better we know someone, the easier it is to really love them. We can see here in Chapter 3 that Rebecca has come to love her cellmates. And you'll see as we go on that that doesn't negate or invalidate the love that she also feels for Daniel. We forget that, historically speaking, it's been far more common to marry someone and then come to love them, rather than to fall in love and then get married. And honestly, if you look at the divorce statistics in the modern Western world, the latter technique hasn't exactly been all that successful in creating relationships that last. The Hive follows an older model in that respect, in which your duty to your children and your tribe or community is more important than the love that you might feel for this person in this moment. Now, does that mean that the Hive's doing things perfectly? Obviously not. Their system works really well for raising children, but Daniel and Victor are proof of the fact that not everyone in the collective is being treated charitably. The question of what constitutes fair treatment and how much the needs of a society should give way to the needs of the individual, those are big and important matters that run right through the heart of this book. I hope that answers your question, Nobilis. I'm sorry that I didn't set out the details of that conflict well enough in the beginning, but hopefully it makes a little more sense now. I thank you again for your feedback because it shows me something that I'll need to address in the rewrite. You're helping to make this a better story, and for that, I am sincerely grateful. That'll do it for voicemail, but we do have some other feedback that I want to tell you guys about that we got through other avenues. Three people have posted reviews of Metamore City on iTunes. Trenpa calls it very engaging and crazy big fun. Nose in a Book says that Metamore City is intense and dark like chocolate. PC Goat 20,000 says, This podcast is right up there with Sigler and Seventh Son. It will amaze and awe. 
thank you so much, you guys, for taking the time to post those reviews. You know, iTunes is the biggest venue that people use these days for subscribing to podcasts. So when they visit the show's description page and see people talking about how much they like it, that makes it a lot more likely that they'll sign up themselves. You have all proven yourselves to be worthy citizens of Metamore. We also got a recommendation from SB at objectionablematerial.blogspot.com. SB writes, So far, after only the first story, Welcome to the City, I am hooked. This is excellent, high-quality stuff. The writing is great, the production quality is top-notch, and the world is really, really interesting. I can't wait to find out what Ollie is going to do with it. Unquote. Thanks for spreading the word, SB. I'm glad you're enjoying the show, and I hope that you find the rest of the episodes even more interesting and engaging than the first one. I also received a couple of very nice emails. Chris Vidson, the author of the podcast novel Outcast, wrote in to say, When I first heard about what Metamore City was all about, I was intrigued. I'm now thankful that I took the time to check it out, though, because it has to be, to me, one of the best podcasts out there. Each episode, I'm blown away by the richness of the world, the characters, and the emotion that you pack into each story. Troubled minds left me completely drained and a bit teary-eyed at the end. Yeah, me too. I always look forward to each episode, and the production quality only accents the passion you've put into this world. Absolutely excellent job. Thanks, Chris. I'm always pleased when my stories can make an impact on people emotionally. If you guys want to check out Chris's story, which is a far future SF adventure, you can visit his website at outcastnovel.wordpress.com. I also got an email from Ink Gypsy, which I'm not going to read in its entirety because it was quite long. She told me that she loves reading, but hasn't had much time to do so lately because she's busy taking care of her new baby. Podcasts allow her to stay entertained while she's feeding the kid, and Metamore City is one of her newfound favorites. She writes, Metamore City is my first story of choice right now. I love it. The music and sound effects extras are great and give the storytelling just a little something extra special, unquote. She also complimented me on my narration and said that the stories strike a good balance of description and mood setting in the middle of all the action. Thanks for all the encouragement, Tink Gypsy. I'm really glad that I'm giving you a way to have fun while still spending time with your son. If you'd like to send us feedback, you can send emails and recorded voice comments to feedback at metamorecity.com. You can also call the voicemail line at 206-350-7333. And if you do anything to help promote the podcast, send me an email and let me know. I'll be sure to give you guys props for doing so. That'll do it for this week. For those of you who are in the Bay Area this week, I'll see you at the meetup. Otherwise, you'll hear from me in two weeks. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. Some of the music on this podcast was provided by the Podshow Podsafe Music Network at music.podshow.com. Some sound effects were provided by SoundSnap at soundsnap.com, while others were provided by the Freesound Project, located at freesound.iua.com. .upf.edu. Metamore City is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 license. Find out more at creativecommons.org.